Welcome to this podcast about Hilton Head Island and the Low Country. I am Jay, your host. In this episode, we are talking with Melanie Beal Marks about the historic Garvin Garvey House in Bluffton and also about solving one of the great Low Country mysteries, the origins of Burnt Church Road. Join us as we travel down 278 to Lighthouse Road. Melanie Beal Marks is founder and principal researcher of CT House Histories. She is an advocate and preservationist for abandoned and threatened properties. Melanie received the South Carolina Historic Preservation Award in 2017 for her effort to save the Garvin Garvey House in Bluffton. Melanie and Genevieve Riley Secchi recently released a book about one of the great mysteries in Bluffton called Burnt Church Road unraveling the story behind the name. Her research and preservation work is extensive, and you can find out more about the project she has worked on at cthousehistories.com. Melanie, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to speaking to you. Melanie, share with our listeners about your background and how CT House Histories came to be. Well, I have always been in in, uh, in love with history and um, have always been involved with preservation. So in 2008, I decided to launch my company, uh, CT House Histories, uh, because I found a, a, a niche up here in Connecticut where not a lot of people were doing this type of work and there seemed to be a need for it. Um, plenty of people were interested in getting their houses listed on the state and national registry and um, it just... It just took off from there, um, and it was a perfect time. My kids were in college. My husband was traveling international, and I was home, you know, looking for something new to do. So I made it a full-time job. Bluffton, South Carolina is a very long way from Connecticut. How did you become involved with the Garvin Garvey House Project? Well, my husband and I uh, built a house in Palmetto Bluff in 2008, around the same time I started my company. And uh, he he left corporate and decided that he wanted a change and start building houses and was very involved with the town as far as getting permits and such. And, uh, actually learned about the Garvin House uh, at that time. That's what it was called. And it decided to volunteer my services unbeknownst to me. Um, but it was a good project and I enjoyed doing it for the town. That's always a typical spouse thing. You get volunteered to do things that you have. You did what? <laughs> uh, well, and that's exactly what I did say to him because I was in the middle of three major projects up here and the town had a deadline. They wanted to have a ribbon cutting and have everything ready by X date, and uh, I had to really scramble. <laughs> Share with us what went into the research that you did on the Garvin Garvey house. Where did you start, and how did you piece all that information together? Well, everybody seemed to know that it was the Cyrus Garvin house, and obviously everybody knew where the house was and, and the, the state of uh, disrepair that it had been sitting in for many, many years. But nobody, from what I could tell, had ever asked the question, well, who was he? We know he was a, a, a freedman and um, that he built this house shortly after the end of the Civil War, but nobody had ever really delved into who he was or his his life. And uh, so that's what we, we did. Uh, I have 
several uh, independent contractors that work with me, and I did all the research, and uh, a colleague of mine did the um, actual writing of our report for the town. And just so everybody know, if you go to the town's website and type in Cyrus Garvin Garvey House, uh, our complete report is online, and you can read it there. Can you share with us who he was and what the significance is of his home? Yes, the property was uh, originally owned by Joseph Baynard, and we believe that he was the slave of Joseph Baynard. And shortly after the end of the war, Joseph went to Savannah and never really returned to Bluffton. And Cyrus um, was allowed to build his house on the property on the May River, and he did. Um, But he wasn't deeded the property until I believe it was 1891 when Joseph finally made him owner of the land. And then um, not too long after that, Cyrus petitioned to buy the land that would be contiguous with the river. And he was awarded that little parcel of land um, from the state of South Carolina. The governor actually signed off on the deed. So his property uh, actually goes all the way down to the the water's edge. It's quite a piece of property that he sits on. It's a very, very beautiful location. And, you know, these days would be extremely valuable. Oh, extremely valuable. I told the town that if they ever decided to sell it, uh, they have to sell it to me because I want to sit on that front porch with my coffee. (laughs) (laughs) It's beautiful. Oh, it absolutely is. I can only imagine, you know, what it was like back then when it was so much more uh, rustic and rural. And Bluffton has just exploded over the last... 20 30 years back then it, it, there it was, has it was probably nothing nothing but a dirt road back then nope that's exactly what it was and uh and very probably rugged and and nothing really as beautiful as it is today but um I'm sure he loved every moment living there. Is there much history about what he did after he built his home there? Uh, yes. The you know the interesting thing, um, yeah, and and I'm going to just touch uh, briefly on um, why the the house is now known as the Garvin Garvey House. Everyone knows it as and has always known it as the Cyrus Garvin House. Um, but when we started our research, um, he was he was obviously a very um, religious man, and he was a trustee of the St. Matthew's Baptist Church, and that church is out uh, near the Rotary, uh, 46 and 170. It's a very nondescript, uh, looks like it's a brick building, but um, not many people know that the original Borge Church uh, was encapsulated in the brick. And if you look at the church today, you'll see the wooden uh, cupola <laughs> sticking out of the roof. I had the pleasure of meeting with the, um, the sexton and the treasurer and the handyman who who gave me the history of the church being encapsulated in the brick. Um, so not many people know that it's been preserved that way. But Cyrus bought the land from uh, Dr. Paul Pritchard, who was very prominent in Bluffton at that time. And in the deed, Dr. Pritchard listed him as Cyrus Garvin. When the church was built, Cyrus deeded it back to the trustees. And at that time, he made a correction to the original deed that said, I, Cyrus Garvin, um, it was written incorrectly, and I, Cyrus Garvey, uh, and then he went on. So we associate the house now with Garvin Garvey. How does revealing the history and importance of a property like the Garvin Garvey house galvanize a community into restoring it and making it a destination? Well, I think I think the interesting thing with um, the Garvin House, 
Garvin Garvey house is that it sat in disrepair for quite a long time. There was a, a, a girl who was working for the town, Erin Schumacher, who was, I believe, don't quote me on her position, but she was uh, over preservation. And we knew how significant it was. She did. She helped the town, you know, land grants to get it restored. I came in at a very late end of this process. Um, they had already hired somebody to do all the restoration work. Mike Riffert, I think he was from North Carolina. He did all the restoration work. I did all of the research on the family. And between the two of us, we were able to uh, get the house listed uh, as a uh, on the, I think it's called the African-American Cultural Corridor and, and had a state marker erected at the site. So it's a destination. It's a place for people to come and and see it. The Hayward House, uh, they have docents that give lectures uh, in, the, in the house itself and um, tours. And uh, we worked with HW Exhibits. Um, we formed a, a committee and worked on interpretive signage uh, inside and outside the Garvin House. So when people come, they can read the panels outside. And if it's not open for tours, they can ask to have a tour and then see all the all the interpretive signage inside and all of it's based on our research. Being that the house was in such amazing disrepair when you got involved in the project, what's it mean to you as a preservationist to see that revitalized and rebuilt and made beautiful again? Well, I think I think in this day and age, people think uh, it, it, it's just uh, it's just too expensive to renovate and and save some of these historic structures. It's cheaper to just tear them down and start anew. But, you know, in reality, yeah, maybe it might be a little more expensive, but in the end, you've been able to preserve a little bit, bit of history that um, otherwise would have disappeared. And uh, I know firsthand, my husband and I have been in one, two, three, four, five historic houses. Uh, we renovated uh, a, 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 a a 19 or 1769 farmhouse, carriage house and barn on 18 acres that was threatened um, to be demolished and to McMansions go on the property. So we saved it. We've renovated a 1700 house. We lived in a 1740 house. So, you know, there's no reason that you cannot uh, preserve some of these historic structures. And, you know, once we lose them, they're gone. Why do you see it so important for these types of, of structures being saved? Well, I think when I got into um, preservation, I was mentored by the generation before me and who were passionate about the same issues. Um, and I felt it was my duty to be stewards for the next generation. And, you know, if you ask my kids, they will tell you uh, every time they call, they know I'm either in a vault or in a cemetery somewhere because of the tone of my voice. <laughs> So, you know, I think I think we all have a responsibility to to try and save what historic structures we do have, because once they're gone, they're gone. And I don't care what you put on its place. It will never replace the originals. So that's just my personal opinion. When people think about the founding of the country, Jamestown, which was founded in 1607, is usually the beginning of the discussion in what would become the colonies. But Santa Elena was established by the Spanish in 1566 on what is now Paris Island. When you started researching in the Bluffton area, were you surprised at the amount of history and how early it started in the Lowcountry area? No, I, actually I wasn't. Um, uh, 
My sister and I were researching our father's lineage, and in doing so, we wanted, we were trying to get him into the, the Sons of the American Revolution, which we did. But in researching that, we learned that our seventh great-grandfather was a Quaker from Concord, Massachusetts, who uh, was persecuted for his religious beliefs, and he and a group of his church actually boarded a ship and came south to South Carolina, and they settled in Dorchester. Um, um, just a little, I think it's a little north of Charleston. And they lived there for a while. Uh, several of his kids were born there. And because of, I guess, climate, bugs, whatever, they chose to go back to Massachusetts. And it was um, Samuel Dakin, whose grandson was my fifth great-grandfather, who was our patriot. And um, so, you know, it was kind of interesting for me because I knew nothing about South Carolina until I researched that. And I didn't really have any clue uh, of my connection to South Carolina until we did that research. So I, it, I, I know it does go back very far. I've been coming to Hilton Head for a very long time and have always wondered where the name Burnt Church Road came from. There's kind of a lot of local folklore and mystery around the area. How did you become involved in researching this mystery? Well, I got a call from uh, Billy Watterson, who lives on Hilton Head, and uh, he, he was going to be opening a distillery, and he was trying to come up with a name and had been struggling for what that name might be. And he will tell you if you ask him. One day he was sitting on on 278, staring up at the street sign that said Burnt Church Road, and thought, oh my gosh, that could be the name of our distillery, Burnt Church Distillery. So he tried to do the research and uh, found it very daunting and spoke to his architect, Pierce Scott, who said, you're not going to have any luck doing it, and I suggest you contact Melanie Marks. And he introduced us um, through an email in, um, I think it was July of 2018, and uh, Billy called me and wanted to know if I'd be interested in doing the research. And uh, I said, I would love to. And um, so it's been a long process. I started in July of 2018 and I handed off uh, my final edit uh, of the project in December of 2020. So that's how long I've been working on it. How did you start your research for a project like this and where did it take you? Well, the, the, the first thing is, um, you know, you kind of have to weed through uh, all of the different stories and folklore and, and it just talking to people. I can't tell you how many people I interviewed. Um, I wanted to get perspective on, you know, where where did it come from? What did people say? And um, and I got myriad answers. Um, you know, people had their own theories, uh, things that were told to them. Uh, Alan Ulmer was a big uh, person that kept coming up in conversation that I needed to talk to. And, you know, he said, oh, well, there was a praise house out there uh, that burned down sometime and the people just started calling it Burnt Church Road. And I, I didn't know anything about a praise house until I started researching it. And then we realized, well, I don't care what they would call it. Anybody in the Gullah community would never have called it a church, whether it was whether it burned down or not. A praise house was a praise house. A church was a church. So we knew it was a church. We just had to find it. And that's what, um, that's what we embarked on. 
trying to find a church that burned uh, in the vicinity of where Burnt Church Road is today. So did you end up digging through City Hall records, the library, people's basements? I mean, how do you go about finding exactly what that information is? Because that's got to be very old documentation. I was everywhere. I was in, I can't tell you how many repositories. I can't tell you how many phone calls, people I've interviewed, state workers, uh, Department of Transportation workers combing through uh, the land record deeds, uh, plat maps, old plat maps, uh, anybody that had ever written history about Bluffton. Uh, Dr. Larry Rowland was, um, his books are incredible. I bought all three of them uh, at his lecture and we called him our Bible because we referred back to them constantly. Um, so you, you combine a lot of things. You, you get in gather mode and you're just gathering everything and anything that pertains to the area. Um, I go into, you know, old books uh, that I find online. You know, it's, it's, it's unlimited on, on the amount of resources we combed through um, to put this story together. Seems like you're dealing with, you're trying to weed through all this folklore, local legends. You know, is a lot of that information helpful or is a lot of it just disinformation or misinformation? It can lead you down a gazillion different roads. How do you figure out which road to go down? Well, you know, I never dismiss um, local lore or personal oral histories because they are significant. They are helpful. They, they, they you know, have been handed this information from prior generations. So you take that information, you kind of file it away, and you use it as a resource. You don't use it as gospel, but you use it as resource. And um, and sometimes, you know, more often than not, we have found that a lot of these um, stories that were passed down were accurate, and um, and they tied into the rest of the research that we have um, had uncovered. And um, I'm a big stickler about. Um, um, sources. That's one thing I pride myself on. I will not use somebody else's information unless I can cite the source. I may reference it and say where it came from, but I will never quote it as gospel. It's just my work ethic. And, um, I, I, you know, I've seen a lot of research where um, people take somebody else's work and use it in their work. And that work prior to that was inaccurate. And um, and then it just perpetuates to the next person that's working on it. So I try and be very careful about my sources and being able to cite them. As you're gathering this information, how do you organize? Do you use a lot of whiteboards? Do you use a wall with a whole bunch of post-it notes? How do you kind of keep everything together <laughs> and, and, and draw that conclusion? Uh, well, I uh, have, have been doing this for since 2008. Uh, I have a method that works for me and works for my colleagues that work for me. We, we, um, I organize them in binders based on subject. Um, like if I'm researching the plantations that surrounded Burnt Church Road, um, I would research Squire Pope and he would have his own, own section in a binder. Dr. James Mostoni owned Trumbleston Plantation. He would have his own section in the binder. So I organize all of my notes based on the area that I'm researching. And then I put them all in order. They're all in sleeves. They're all by tabs. And then I can flip through it. And when I handed all of this off to Genevieve to do the writing of the book, it's easy because I put it in chronological order. And this is how I see and envision the story being told. And then that's how we've done all of our projects. You mentioned along the way that 
people just started calling it Burn Church Road after a certain event. That road did have a name before that. What was that name, and do you know where that name came from? Yes, the 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 name of Burn Church Road prior to it being called Burn Church Road was called Palmer Stretch, and the the reason it was called Palmer Stretch it was named after a black man, uh, George Bell Palmer, who lived at the bottom of Burn Church Road, and uh, according to um, a gentleman that I interviewed in town, uh, the road was stretched up to uh, Fording Island Road. And so that's why it was called Palmer Stretch. And everybody knows in Bluffton that Harry Cram and Roy Rainey Jr. uh, had their infamous horse race on Palmer Stretch on Thanksgiving in, I want to say, 1931. And so that's why Palmer Stretch was significant. Later on, it it morphed into Burnt Church Road. During your investigation and your research, did you have a aha moment where you found the document, heard the story where you're like, this is it. I finally found the name of this church and I have an idea what happened. Yes. We, uh, as I, you know, may have said previously, um, in doing this research, I can't tell you how many rabbit holes we went down uh, trying to find a church that was out there that was the church we were looking for and when it burned. And um, it took us a while. I mean, after a year of researching and feeling like we just weren't finding it, there was a moment where I had a document that I was like, I, I had it early on in the research, but it didn't make any sense to me. And I put it aside until we kept working on it. Um, Billy hired me to do 50 hours of research. I presented uh, what I had come up with at that time. And then we still didn't really have concrete proof of a church. And he asked me to continue working on it. And it wasn't until that second phase that we came across a document that just clicked. And we knew Okay. Now we're now we're getting somewhere. Now we're on the right road. When you finished your research and presented it in a research paper form to Billy Watterson, the founder of the distillery, how did this end up being a book? Well, you know, it's funny. I don't know if Billy ever really thought that he would want to have a finished product like a book. When we first started this, I think he was just more interested in understanding the origin of the name um, because he was going to be giving the distillery that name. Um, but I think as we, you know, worked over the course of almost two years, he realized that we really had a great story and everything that he incorporated into the design of the distillery and the attention to detail, everything from the study uh, with all the interpretive panels that are in there now, the design of all the bottles and the detail and the etching and the histories behind them. If you go to his website, you can see all the videos for each brand of spirits that they will they are selling. All of that was based on this research. So it, it just made sense. Why not make a book out of it? And, uh, you know, <laughs> I'd never done a book and uh, it was a learning process. And I'm not a writer and I don't profess to be. I surround myself with people that fill in those weaknesses that I have. I'm a researcher. I, I, I feel very confident in saying I'm a good one. But when it comes to writing, I'm getting better at it, but I'm not a professional at it. So I surround myself with people that 
those are their strengths. Genevieve Riley is an incredible writer. Um, Patricia Hine, who um, helped with reworking uh, the flow of the book and editing it, was an editor in my local town for over 30 years at our local newspaper. Genevieve Riley was a reporter for uh, our local newspaper. And so the three of us have known each other forever. And so it was a collaboration of all of us working together, and um, I think we, we came up with a really exciting book, and it's all Bluffton history and um, and Hilton Head history. It's, uh, I, I, think, um, I think people are going to be, um, I hope people are excited when they get it and read it and learn something from it. The book is called Burnt Church Road, Unraveling the Story Behind the Name. Without really spoiling the results, what can readers expect to find throughout the book, and where can they get a copy of it? Well, I think that the the mystery uh, behind Burnt Church Road is um, the who, what, when, where, and why. And so I think, you know, we've pretty much answered all of that. We know who built the church. We know what was built. Um, we know the size. Uh, we know when it was built. We know where it was built. Um, not the physical place, but we know on what plantation, and um, we know why it was built. And without giving all of that away, I think, um, and we also do believe we know when it was burned. And, you know, again, it's our interpretation based on our research on um, why we believe all of this. And I think um, people will see that um, I have cited all my sources on why we believe this is the true story. There will always be people that will come after you and say, mm, no, I, they got it wrong. And that's okay. I'm okay with that. Um, but I think we, we answered the question. And I think the book is, is very exciting. It has a lot of information, not just about the church, but the dynamics of what was going on during that time period and people uh, that were living during that time period. And where can they find a copy of it? They can actually go to uh, the Burnt Church Distillery uh, website. I think it's just burntchurchdistillery.com. And if you click on the tab called Shop, uh, you will see the book and you can place an order there. Or they can go to the distillery itself. Um, there is a mercantile in the distillery and the books are on sale there as well. And I might also add that I will be down in uh, Bluffton on June 7th um, and hopefully we will be doing a book signing. Do you have any future plans to work in the Bluffton area? And if not, would you like to? I'm hoping that Billy comes up with another project because um, I had so much fun working with him. We we think a lot alike and his passion for history and detail is, is very much like my own. And I don't see him sitting around uh, not doing anything. I mean, it's just his nature. So hopefully he'll have a new project. I'm always tinkering. I'm always looking at something, you know, I come across in Bluffton history and, you know, I spend a lot of time with Kelly Graham and Katie Epps at the uh, Bluffton, the historic Bluffton Foundation at the Hayward House. And, you know, we're always bouncing off, you know, did you know this or have you thought, have you seen anything about this? And so I'm always tinkering. I, I'm not worried about not having something to work on down there. Once again, the name of the book is Burnt Church Road, Unraveling the Story Behind the Name by Genevieve Riley Secchi and Melanie Beal Marks. You can find the book at burntchurchdistillery.com or visit the distillery and pick up a copy while you're there. Make a great beach read while you're visiting the island. Melanie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. If you enjoy this podcast, we ask that you subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review so we can get noticed by more people that love Hilton Head and the Low Country. Until next time, we wish you safe travels down 278 to Lighthouse Road.